gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Now looking at his watch because apparently a woman's spoken too long. God's kingdom will come. It is in his hands. We trust in him. We don't trust in governments. You want to go down that path today, I will (laughs) do it. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowd's politics podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and tonight I'm joined by Porter and Jason. How are we both feeling tonight? Feeling great. Looking forward to getting into it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Yeah, it's a pretty big week this week, Uh, sort of in a string of big weeks, we'll say. Uh, We've got Albanese in India right now in talks with with Modi about uh, various sorts of Australia-India things. We also have a big announcement looming about the nuclear submarine acquisition deal uh, that will probably come out sometime in the next 24 hours, and we will likely cover that next week. Tonight, what we've got lined up is that we will be discussing some uh, some statistics surrounding child hunger um, with Porter. I will be talking about the bank run that has just occurred in the United States the uh, on the Silicon Valley Bank. And Jason will be talking us through some drama in the American media, I believe. So it's a good lineup. Uh, and we'll be, kick- we'll be kicking it off just with uh, Porter uh, telling us all about child hunger. Great. So this has kind of been in the news. This was in the news today. Um, but Food Bank, which is one of Australia's biggest food banks, might be like the biggest kind of like charity organisation around food, um, released a report um, fairly recently uh, where they kind of did a survey of Australian households and they asked them how kind of food insecure they were. Um, and some of the results that have come back were fairly shocking. Like, I didn't realise that things were actually this bad. And I think that it's, like, pretty unacceptable and that this is kind of a problem that should be addressed immediately, but, like, depressingly probably won't. Um, so, like, apparently they're saying that, um, like, 1.3 million children have experienced severe food insecurity over the course of the last year or so, um, which amounts to about 20% of households altogether. Um it's particularly bad, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, in single-parent households, where about um, 37%, almost 40, you know, almost 40% um, have experienced severe insecurity. I mean, that's a really major problem there. Um, the the survey only asked if um, food insecurity was happening over the course of the last um, year, but they didn't necessarily say if it was like constant. They have kind of a series of like metrics as to how um, bad it is for some people. It's only like a, a they, describe it, they, they describe it as transitory, where it only goes on for like a few days or like less than a week. Um, and so I think about 60% or so of um, bouts of severe insecurity um, go on for about a week, but there are some that kind of stick and are really bad and go on, you know, basically for years without really being addressed. Um, And that's getting worse for households that are marked as being severely food insecure, whereas it's the um, time that um, households are being marked as moderately food insecure is kind of getting better. But that might be because they're shifting into being um, severely food insecure. Um, And so we just have these like horrible situations where like, children are lying to their parents about how hungry they are because they know that their parents will like skip meals if they're um if they know that their their children are really hungry um and kind of vice versa the parents will pretend that they aren't that hungry and that they don't really need to eat eat dinner or whatever so the the children don't feel bad about um you know eating their food um 
and this is just kind of like generally a problem that's getting worse over time uh, because of inflation, because of rising interest rates, like people are facing mortgage pressure and they're also uh, kind of as a, um, a flow on effect of that, they're facing increasing rent pressure. Um, and so people will often turn to kind of food banks and like charities um, and like kind of related organisations to try and um, address these problems. But only two in five households that experience food insecurity go to those organisations and people often feel embarrassed to have to go to those organisations. Um, and so like there's this kind of debate or it was brought up in the media um, as to whether or not this means that uh, you know, various welfare payments should be increased, um, whether there should be increased government support for charities. I think that the government gives like $50 million a year or something like that to food-related charities. Um, and some people are saying that we should have this kind of like, you know, cafeteria-based system where like schools provide food to um, children kind of free of charges like their main meal. Um, and, and so I guess that what we can talk about here is, you know, firstly, this is a pretty terrible situation. How do we get here? Um, and secondly, what are potentially some of the options that we might have um, to like really address this problem? Because I think that this is like this is pretty unacceptable in one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, I was just going to say that I feel like there's there's a huge disconnect between the rising cost of living over the last number of years, especially in like increased rents in comparison to welfare payments. Like they yeah. are just disastrously low uh, in that they've they've done studies showing that there were like literally zero households available or places yeah. available to live for people who are on the amount of money that you get from Central yeah. in in various capital cities yeah i mean i feel like we were hearing you know 10 plus years ago about how people couldn't live on um welfare payments and they've kind of barely moved since then right and we've had like the massive cost of living crisis as well right where there's been quite high inflation um rates for quite a while now right and so it's just it's a bad problem that's just getting worse and worse and lots of like governments don't really seem willing to like seriously address it yeah it's pretty clear that the australian welfare state has just been hollowed out progressively over yeah. the course of the past three or so decades and this is just a consequence of that. We've seen this with students as well. I know that there was a big report by the National Union of Students last year that found out that you know students are going hungry because yeah. like they're excluded because of the age of ind independence requirements, right? And this is this seems to be similar in some respects because it's essentially an issue of poor targeting. So the the, the existing welfare payments that aren't targeting aren't necessarily like targeting the the most vulnerable in Australian society, and they're not providing enough money either. Um, so pretty, pretty disappointing stuff. I think the, yeah, once again, this is just like one of those things that just like has a pretty simple <laughs> yeah. solution. Uh, and it is, it is just increasing the welfare payments. Um, how, how that's done is sort of up to, you know, up to whatever the government sort of does. But like recently, right, we've seen in the US, the expansion of their, of their child tax credit, which was although done sort of through the framing of a tax credit, well, it was essentially like a, a welfare measure. And we've already like, there's been dozens of studies already like on the anti-poverty effects of this and how like less children are going hungry because of it. And so it is literally sometimes a matter of just giving people more money because because they will spend it on food yeah, yeah. especially for their children yeah i think that like while um the kind of the programs that are focused on like schools giving food to children and so forth or like 
community organisations and charities, those are all great. In a way, the fact that they have to exist is kind of an indictment on the state of our society, on the state of our welfare state and so forth, where you kind of get the sense that they kind of shouldn't need to exist, that people should just have enough money for food regardless um, and, and that they shouldn't need to go to a food bank or something like that. Yeah, because charities just are incapable of filling that gap effectively. They've never been able to do it historically. They still don't do it now. So it is a matter of like you, you need the tax and spend capacity of the state to actually fix these solutions. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like they're having a like it's really hard to get the issue off the ground because they have so the particularly one side of politics has made like the idea of an unemployed person uh, like sucking at the teat of the state such a boogeyman that it doesn't really reflect like how much it actually costs. I think the last figures that I saw, it was somewhere around nine or 10 billion on welfare payments. And and we give away like 50 billion a year on child tax credits and other kinds of middle-class welfare. Like it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the money that is given to other sectors of society that are just not as desperate. Yeah, I mean, apparently the um, nuclear submarines are going to cost like $200 billion or something like that as well, right? Like, yeah, it, as you're saying, it really is a, a drop in the bucket. Look, we do spend a good deal of our GDP on sort of welfare measures. I, we spend a lot on retirement payments, for instance, also on superannuation and Medicare, obviously. Um, so like, we do spend a lot, I would say, but obviously, like, still clearly not enough. Yeah. I, I was sp- speaking specifically about people on like uh, unemployment benefits. Yeah, yeah. That, so, yeah. That, yeah. that is actually a quite small slice of the overall yes. welfare spend yeah. pie. But it's blown that, that, out that to true. be like there's all these people who are just getting all this free money. Yeah. And like living it up. And it's like, if you look at a lot of the families that are experiencing food insecurity, they they will be getting um, welfare payments, but they'll also be working as well, right? And it's just, they'll be working and getting welfare payments and just be, still be incapable of feeding themselves or feeding their children and so forth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because when, when you have a means testing regime like this, and that's when the stigmatization starts to step in because you only give it to people who are doing something quote unquote wrong in some way, right? Um, you know, but then if you look, look, look at something like Medicare, you know, like yeah, back in back in the eighties, mm. it was Bob Hawke Television saying like, you know, go 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 use your your fucking Medicare, like it's available <laughs> yeah. to everyone, uh, and like that's yeah, that that's the sort of thing that gets people wanting to participate in these measures and actually use them, um, and we definitely have a, a lack of that with something like unemployment benefits, where unemployment benefits, like you know, th- th- that's you know. If the state doesn't have full a full employment, if they're not actually aiming for that as a as a goal, then unemployment benefits are a requirement. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, under unemployment are a requirement for like a, a dignified life for people that you're not actively giving jobs to, right? So you know, well, it's it's also kind of by design where you have if there was just no pool of unemployed people to be able to compete for those for for jobs, basically. But um, I also think it's by design that limiting things to a, um, a means-tested situation, they know that creates a different class of people, that creates something that can be demonised, something that 
uh, they're not one of us. Like you give everybody Medicare and everyone likes it because it's like not means tested. <laughs> you just, except for, you know, like a low income healthcare card or something that can get you bulk billed at places that don't do it for everyone, you know, but it's, yeah, I definitely think that's by design, this, this whole idea that the, the right of politics likes to create these means tested dishes in the guise that it's because we're being responsible for money, but really it's to make it so people don't believe these things are for them. I agree that means testing is a right-wing policy. Interestingly enough, most means tests in this country have been implemented by the Labor Party. Oh, of course. Um, wow. Of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you... If you See, so Australia had like quite an interesting situation where our neoliberal tilt came under Labor in the 80s. Yeah, in terms yeah. of starting to sell off, sell off a lot of infrastructure in, um, like, yeah, okay, so he brought in Medicare, but also um, he, our labour movement, almost like a precursor to Blairism, the British labour policies, and almost even reflected a lot of what Thatcher did in the 80s. I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, like, our, our Labour Party occupies an interesting position of... Uh, largely due to the quite sort of interesting situation and relationship with that labor movement of having both implemented universal and, and beloved welfare policies such as Medicare, but then also engaging in like uh, sell-offs of, of national industries like our airlines and the banks and such. Um, so yeah, definitely a sort of interesting historical situation there. But yeah, I mean, that, that's it. Always, uh, there's always sort of been a relationship between Labor Party and like, kind of means testing in some ways they've always sort of preferred to do welfare through the wage system that's sort of because the the, the unique way that uh that like how do i put it the, the interesting way that the sort of welfare process began in australia with like the 1907 harvest of judgment and such which like sort of just made, gave interesting rules for like how we how we did welfare that we sort of stuck by, uh, and then we just sort of we saw we saw that just like really reiterate itself, really reassert itself um, during the during the eighties again with uh, with Hawke and such. Um, and now the whole idea, and then the whole idea is concerned has been you know like welfare is for the activation of our of our workforce, right? Which yeah, uh, <laughs> which is well, sort, of, sort of sort of has some worrying implications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a kind of result of the specific situation that we have, where we kind of had uh, what's known as a laborist movement. We didn't necessarily have a social democratic movement that you would have, say, in mainland Europe. Um, so a lot of policies aren't over the, over the decades have not necessarily been, uh, socialist, but worker focused. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, like that, this is why, um, that there's an, there's Australian economist, uh, Francis Castles who, who made the argument to, uh, to, to Gusta Esping Anderson that, uh, that said um you know that gusta your your classification of liberal conservative and social democratic welfare states is incorrect because australia is actually its own thing it's a wage earners welfare state um and that's because we did things to the wage system basically and so to bring this all back to child hunger one of the one of the consequences of having a wage earners welfare state of course is that those who are not wage earners have traditionally been excluded that includes children of course and so the you know it seems like the solution is to beef up 
that state that that state capacity um and to implement a welfare system which works uh, adequately for children as well as for adults and workers but it seems that the interest rate crunch is hurting uh, many, many sectors of the economy across the world, we will say, not just children, but still children quite a lot, because we've also had a bank run recently. Uh, this has been our first one in a couple of years, I think, uh, the last one being in America, at least back in 2020. Obviously, American bank runs can be a bit of a big deal, as we, <laughs> as we discussed years ago. Uh, but yeah, so this is the Silicon Valley Bank. It, this, it is actually the biggest lender to fail since 2008. What happened What happened to cause this was that uh, SVB, the, the bank, were quite, uh, had, had a bunch of US treasury bonds, essentially. And treasuries are a pretty safe investment, of course, like, you know, among the safest invents, investments in the world. But what happened, of course, is that when interest rates started to rise, they found that when it came to selling off these treasury bonds, they were unable to raise the capital they needed to offset the loss of the stock as the interest rates uh, lowered the lowered the, the uh, lowered the value of the treasury bonds. Uh, so this led to a bunch of companies pulling out of SVB. Eventually, a, a credit rating agency like downgraded their credit status as well, and this caused even more depositors to pull out. Many of these deposits, I've, I've, my understanding is that many of them were wineries yeah. <laughs> in the um, in the Silicon Valley yeah. region. There's obviously a few tech companies invested as well, though. What has happened is that FDIC, the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, I think, um, have had to step in, uh, shut shut the bank down, and they are now running it effectively, I believe. Um, and they have they are giving out uh, what we call receivers certificates to those who have uninsured deposits. Separate to this, but still quite related, the Fed have announced an emergency lending program. Uh, so they will be uh, giving credit to to SVB, of course, but they'll also be uh, extending it to any other uh, sort of bank that requires it um, to try to prevent like an extension or like of this into uh, a full on bank run. Um, this hasn't happened quite yet. We have had another US bank close. This is the New York uh, Signature Bank. Um, they've had a bit of trouble, um, but like. So far, the American and thereby the global financial system has kept pretty stable. Um, what might be a potential threat to this is that many other US banks also hold uh, treasuries. So we'll have to sort of wait and see if they will face like similar pressures to the same extent, which is maybe somewhat unlikely um, at this point because they aren't as invested as SVB were. But it is, it is still certainly a distinct possibility. So I guess my my question for the two of you is, do you think this is an indication of broader instability within the financial system currently? Well, I think if you can't sustain like 0.1% interest rates and anything above that is starting to panic everyone, then no, it seems quite unsustainable. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that this is this is my my opinion as well. So I think um, I think things have relatively stabilized, but I don't think we're in a position where we can say that we are safe for the long term or even short term future. I would say um, I think there is still um, I don't I, I I still I think like financial governance is still not in a position where it sort of needs to be. Um, and this is sort of reflected in like the the the, the Basel the the Basel three agreement. Uh, which is a bit sort of dodgy, but that's you know, <laughs> don't 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 get me talking about Basel three though. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's some sort of wider systemic problems with how um, with how like 
financial governance is operating. And this is sort of reflected in that. With that said, I think the response has been pretty, pretty solid. Like I think this is how a government should respond to a bank failure and a potential bank run. Like you, you step in, you effectively like, you know, temporarily nationalize the bank and, and run it yourself and you, and, you, and you fund it yourself to ensure that like people aren't getting screwed out of their deposits. Um, and then like, you 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 solve you solve the issue yourself. Um, so I think I think the response has been pretty pretty fair so far. What, what do we think? Yeah, um, I think on the um, financial stability point, um, it is interesting that it's collapsed because it was holding too many bonds in a way. Like that's supposed to be the safe investment option. It's not crypto. It's not you know stocks that can crash. Treasuries are supposed to be the kind of stable option for people that want to play it safe, and that's you know that hasn't worked out here, and that's clearly like a pretty bad sign if the safest option is the one that ends up kind of screw, screwing you over a little bit. Um, and yeah, regarding how government should respond to bank failure, I, I definitely think that this is, I'm not sure what the ideal um, way to do it would be, but I think that this is certainly far better than what happened back in 2008 with, you know, bank bailouts um, and the banks kind of often reverting back to their kind of shady practices once the whole thing was over. This way, there's kind of the the um, we still don't end up with you know people being screwed out of their their deposits, but simultaneously the the bank is kind of allowed to go under a little bit, um, and there is kind of that that punishment. There is um, yeah, like it, 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 it there is kind of some fallout, and there is the opportunity to kind of restructure things right so that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, and I think one of the worst things about the GFC to me is that the American government knew how to appropriately respond to the bank failures because they did it for one of the initial banks, right? They, they did the right. temporary nationalization. They, they engaged in it in a restructuring of the bank. Then they proceeded to not do it for any other banks, essentially. Um, and, th- and this is sort of guided by a, a general understanding, especially one from uh, like Sweden in particular, the Sweden's experience with their, uh, their financial crisis in the 90s, which funnily enough also came from a, from a housing bubble. Um, they, they essentially nationalized, uh, nationalized their banks until they got their shit together, restructured everything. Yeah. And they have yeah a pretty stable financial system. Now. Um, I think one of the big weaknesses of the American response was that they didn't do that. Um, that they, uh, that they sort of just let the banks sort of, they let the banks sort of fail. And then, then they did the, they did the bailout eventually. Um, and like the bailout, sure. But the bailout wasn't attached to like a series of conditions yeah, for instruction, yeah. and and that's and that's the main issue essentially. So I think you know this is probably an improvement on that, even if like the broader financial governance has some issues. Yeah, it's definitely a better a better response, I I think than than what happened after two thousand eight. But the it also like it's almost like a band aid. Or something that's a, a structural problem. Like, are there different ways that we could organize financial systems that mean we don't have to leap from disaster to disaster? I would say yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think we have um, we, we have we have sort of done it to some extent in 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 the past, right? Like, we did have a pretty financial, uh, sorry, a pretty stable financial system for a period of about you know, like 20 or so years, um, it was called bread and woods. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it was, it was stable for a bit. 
sort of destabilized destabilized towards the end um but like yeah like that you know it did sort of work um like you know and i know like in america for instance they like government government agencies that would um that would like underwrite like housing loans for instance um and like you know and this was relatively stable like we didn't have anywhere near the extent um of like bank failures or financial crises that we have today so yeah it probably goes back to sort of rampant financialization of, of all sorts of elements of the economy i guess like you know like everyone's in that like everyone is invested in like like the stability of the financial system now like yeah that's that's been one of the sort of big successes big successes of like neoliberalism we could say that like you know the the average person like needs the financial system to like be safe because if they're not then like you know the their, their house is fucked the uh that their job might be fucked in some way it, it can all go to shit so yeah i think there are better ways of doing things um and i i don't think we can go back to bread and wounds um but i think maybe there's there's inspiration to take i've just got all my money in nfts now <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll leave it there and we'll I'll pass it over to Jason now and you can break down what's been going on with Tucker Carlson and various other cookers. All right. So I was just going to uh, hoping to briefly chat about this Fox News versus Dominion uh, defamation case that's happening in the US at the moment. I don't know how much you guys have been following it, but it's quite interesting. and. There are certain outcomes that just could kind of lead to the abolishing of Fox News. Like, so the Dominion case, I think they're suing them for a billion something. And there's, they've also got a Smartmatic case on the horizon, which is another voting machine company that is suing them for 2.6 billion, I think. So that's a big, ch- they don't have that much money in the bank. Um, they have quite a lot, but not that much. Um, and this is all over a whole bunch of Fox reporters after the 2020 kind of January 6th debacle and the 2020 election. They have been shown in this case in um, filings to have texted each other numerous times revealing that they had they were openly lying to their viewers. They did not believe the stuff they were saying. And it's kind of one of the things that you are required to have uh, in America for defamation is something called malicious intent. So we don't really require that in Australia, but it's something that is they they actually have a generally higher level that you bar that you have to pass in order to um, successfully undertake a defamation lawsuit. And so one of the something he said, so this was specifically about the bunch of the cavalcade of clowns that were coming on talking about the election being rigged and all the kind of lawyery stuff that they wanted to do in order to prove it. And he texted a colleague, we worked really hard to build what we have. Those fuckers are destroying our credibility. It enrages me. And also kind of revealed what he really thinks about Trump. What Trump is good at is destroying things. He's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. And he also called for colleagues to be dropped because they went against the crazies and liars that they were parading in front of everybody 
texting, um, please get her fired. Seriously, what the fuck? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately, like tonight. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down, not a joke. Which is kind of an interesting conflict of interest and really gets to the heart of, I think, problems with journalism in a very capitalist society in that there are laws that mean that you have to uphold the interests of your shareholders. You you can't actively do things that might harm their financial interest in the company. But they're a news organization, and if they were to start telling the truth, then they would lose viewers, which would actively harm the interests of the shareholders. Now, I also could say that like getting involved in $3 billion defamation lawsuits could harm... <laughs> shareholder interest as well but um so fox news have basically been able to exist in the u.s because uh reagan got rid of something called the fairness doctrine which basically stated that opposing views had to be discussed on any controversial or contested issue i don't even know if this would be something effective in this day and age like if say fox news was up upheld to the fairness doctrine all their viewers would just go watch OAN or mm. uh, some other kind of crazy online um, America First TV show. And um, yeah, so what what do, what do we think? How do we like right now in a couple of sentences solve the problem of news organizations that require you know profits to survive and must also report the news? even if that makes their viewership go down. Do we just nationalize all media? You know, I think there were like two guys like writing about this like 40 years ago or something. I like, you know, like Herman Chomsky. I I, I don't know. (laughs) No. Um, Yeah. Um, it's It's an interesting one. Where I'm not opposed in principle to something like the fairness doctrine. Like, you know, I think, especially when we did have more centralized media, it was probably good to not, like, you know, sort of lead people in one direction too much. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't mind still having something like that around today. Not that we ever had it in Australia, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, like you say, the decentralization of the media does does pose some um does pose some some problems there. With that said, like you know, it would probably still reach some people. You know, like uh, if someone was tuning to Fox News and Fox News had to bring on like a I don't know, like like an American yeah. liberal or something, like you know, that, that that's probably still like a, a net good. I, w- I yeah. would say. Um, yeah, I think that. I do agree that certain people will kind of turn to the more extreme outlets and just like keep on being crazies. But like, I think that you need to remember that like people aren't necessarily born with the beliefs that Fox News has, right? It's not like there's just a certain segment of the population that believes those things and they're inevitably going to turn on to um, those types of news channels. And if one is made to be a bit more kind of balanced or nuanced, that they're just going to shift over to another one that's less balanced and nuanced, right? Like institutions, organisations like Fox News actively instills these beliefs in people, right? And so if you, 
if you're a family that traditionally watches Fox News, having um, more balanced perspectives, I think, will just like inevitably push you into having more balanced perspectives yourselves, right? Like, it, it, it will instill kind of a different set of beliefs, even if it's still, you know, if it's still Fox News, right? Um, and so I think that if it was enforceable, um, I'm not sure exactly the way that it um, worked prior to 1987, but if it was enforceable, I think that something like that is just just sounds like a good idea. It was. It wasn't always enforced, right. and it was up to the discretion of the uh, FCC whether it would be enforced in any particular yeah, case. Okay. And also, they still have something called the equal time something. It's where, but it only applies to politicians. So, if you are a nationwide news organization and you offer someone from a political party a certain amount of time on a primetime TV show, you have to also accept someone else being from the other political... Well, it's just Republicans and Democrats. There's, there's no yeah, other political yeah. parties in America. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the... They, they do have something like that. But at the same time, I think the issue that I might have with something like the Fairness Doctrine is the determination of what is specifically a uh, controversial or contested issue. So if you take the example of something like climate change, um, they basically all of the uh, major... The news organizations like the BBC have basically said, look, we don't really have to use any kind of fairness on this issue. We don't have to give equal time to the 0.01% of scientists who uh, somehow got a bunch of money in their accounts from a, a polluter and now want to go on television talking about how climate change isn't real. We don't, even though big mudding interests have made it a controversial issue because it's constantly forced down our throats. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's it's bad if a news organisation doesn't present yeah, okay. both sides of something like... Uh, like, if you give five minutes to someone talking about climate change, you have to give five minutes to a climate denial chap. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I... I think it's it's a really difficult issue, like it, it, whether you kind of fall on the side of free speech absolutism where, you know, everyone can just say whatever they want, who needs to have their view heard, whether they should just, you know, get a podcast or something, or whether the BBC has to have them on. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, It's a really thorny issue. Yeah, I think this is the the obvious sort of problem with something like the fairness doctrine is that what then what then constitutes a controversial problem where there needs to be two people two people from opposing sides speaking on it. Um, yeah, I think I, I think you're right. Like something like climate change, like I don't I don't think there needs to be a climate supporter and a climate yeah. denier a climate believer um and i guess for me like I, just, I would consider that to be like a controversial issue personally i guess i mean maybe i maybe i should go off as, like, <laughs> yeah. um, I, mean, I, I don't think it's that personal i'm i'm sort of going off like what what uh what the scientific community believe i suppose it's but, a, yeah, i suppose yeah. it's in indirect indirect response to that i yeah i mean like kind of what 
big money is able to drum into a controversial issue, even if it's not controversial. So if the public perception is that it's controversial or that, uh, you know, your general just person walking around not really thinking about things very much is like, oh, yeah, there's some people who think it's a thing, there's some people who think it's not. I don't know. It uh, It does seem that whether something becomes controversial or not, like, uh, say, in America with uh, trans rights, like, they're just, no, none of these people who are all rah-rah angry about it have probably even met a trans person. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so crazy. It doesn't affect you. Like, don't worry about it. What do you mean? Like, it's just a really, um, there's, there's, a lot of ability for for money to make things a massive issue when they're just not, or a controversy. So I wouldn't be so sure that if we had something like the Fairness Doctrine that that wouldn't be used by, uh, say, a Tony Abbott-type guy needling his way in to make sure that he gets his voice heard everywhere because if you're not, you're not being fair. Yeah, yeah. I, I think those are good points, um, but I think it does kind of depend on what you consider to be a controversial issue and kind of the way that you define that. And you could define it as, like, is it controversial in, like, um, expert amongst experts in the field, right? And in which case, for climate change, it just kind of wouldn't be, right? And you could probably make a case for, like, trans rights amongst, you know, various experts on trans people. Um, it wouldn't be controversial, and so you don't need to have something there. But for other cases, when it is controversial, then, um, you know, amongst the experts, then it might... There, you can you could conceive of some sort of system where um, something like the fairness doctrine will be able to, to apply in those cases, right? Yeah. The other thing for me is if we even consider something like the, the Australian media landscape, for instance, then something like the fairness doctrine would probably tilt more towards favoring progressive views because then that means that like all the all the sort of murdoch rags have to you know have to have to potentially like plat- platform like a, a sort of le- left left-leaning person mm. yeah somewhere, right? that is an um, awesome point yeah because I, I think that they do yeah like we have such a small amount of people that own the media in australia that we don't really have that de- decentralization thing we we probably would benefit from something like this because there's so few like all of the regional papers are now murdoch they're all um and one of our two 24-hour news services uh, is sky news which just basically is turning into Fox News for Australia with all their crazy talking heads at night. Yeah, so I think that's you know I've I haven't considered the fairness doctrine in, in too much uh, to too much personally or anything, but I'm not opposed to that kind of principle. Yeah, yeah. We'll say maybe maybe there's pragmatic issues with the application, but I, I would not be opposed to murdoch newspapers and, and, and various yeah. other media to have left-leaning people in them i think that would be a positive yeah, that's well. absolutely a positive yeah um yeah, e- yeah even if it does mean that you know something like uh the age has to have like a more right-leaning person which i do anyway to, to be honest, yeah. yeah green left weekly now has to platform nazis um all right um so i think you know we we did mention tony abbott a little bit earlier um we're going to mention him a bit more now because it's time for our 
weekly segment of Get in the Bin. In the bin this week is Tony Abbott himself, of course. And this, I believe, I, I mean, I'll pass over to Jason to explain. So Tony Abbott is in the bin this week. If not in the bin, he is going straight into the volcano. I feel like just on like track record and past history, maybe he gets to go in the volcano straight away, like regardless <laughs> of what this issue is. But um, he has joined a UK, the UK's main climate denial group saying that we need more science. So he's trying to get like us to finally listen to the science on climate change. It just happens to be the science that only he thinks is real. Um, so it's a, what is it? The G, GWPF. I don't even know what that acronym stands for. Oh, Global Warming Policy Foundation. I love their just, I love their really vague names that they have for all of these organizations that have these, like, are just made to spread horrendous things. <laughs> They're always something just so uh, innocuous. Um, and it was founded by former Chancellor Nigel Lawson and is known for consistently spreading climate disinformation. And he says of this, all of us want to save the only planet we have, but this should not be by means which impoverish poor people in richer countries and hold poorer countries back. Because, you know, rising tides and massive drought and uh huge amounts of international movement of climate refugees is not going to do that. Um, we need more genuine science and less groupthink in this debate. That's where the... See, this all reads like something that was said in 2003. It's like, I mean, it's, I think it literally uh, was said back in 2003. <laughs> yeah. Um. And that's where the GWPF has been commendably consistent, if a lonely voice. I feel like if you're a lonely voice in science, it either means that you're a genius or just wrong. Um, <laughs> and I think it's very easy to know where this one falls on. Yeah, I've I've looked up the the GWPF, um, and apparently it's registered as as a charity, so that it doesn't have to disclose its funding sources. Um, oh my god! Yeah, don't they love doing that? I, I I do I do love hearing Tony Abbott weigh in on important issues of international ethics. Definitely a respected thinker in that field. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, he cares a lot about about poorer countries countries. Of course, that's why he. He gave so much foreign aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah. So it's pretty cooked, obviously. Jerome Booth, the chairman, um, said that he, quote, brought a global perspective and policy insight at the very highest level and would further assist our objectives and help our efforts to foster a culture of debate, respect, and scrutiny in policy areas that are currently dominated by intolerance, high emotions, moral reasoning, and confusion. Moral reasoning. Moral reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he means by moral reasoning. Uh, I guess maybe... Um, like, I guess uh, moralizing. Yeah. 
I, I guess, yeah. Is yeah. Where, like ter- turning technical issues into a moral problem or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it, it's all nonsense. But, yeah, so I reckon Abbott can go in the bin. Yeah, I mean, I reckon he's been in the bin for a while. I think he's he's oh, been maybe. in the bin. He's been picked up by the garbage truck. He's in the tip. <laughs> he's rotting away. Yeah. But, yeah, we can chuck him in there again just for, you know, good measure. Uh, especially since the Abbott uh, government, we have brought in new bins in Melbourne that also functions right. as trash compactions. So we have yeah. to... This is smart. Have to try that one out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, now you've got paper, plastics, landfill, and Abbott. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So Abbott, get in the bin, I suppose. But that brings (laughs) us to a close for tonight. So the Edge of the Election is affiliated with the Edge of the Crowd Network. You can find our stories at edgeofthecrowd.com and you can find us on social media across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Uh, at also edge of the crowd um so you can also find us on twitter i'm joel w duggan at joel w duggan on twitter um would the rest of you like to share your social media voice i'm at the jason gunst on twitter and i still don't have twitter but i'm slowly feeling the pressure yeah it's 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 gonna become overwhelming anyway (laughs) my my like my like feed is just a bunch of like random like crap that I've never engaged with before right. or something. Something's gone very very wrong on the weekend, I think. Oh so, really? Something something's yeah. gone wrong with Twitter. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder yeah, what that could know. be. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yes, that that's that's it for tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us, and please join us next week where we will probably go over fun and wait till you see what else he stuff. says. Well, why don't we get to that right now? I will say in Trump's defense. And maybe because he's a little bit autistic, he saw <laughs> the stakes of this like at the very beginning. He's like, you don't want, and this is what I do love about Trump, particularly in foreign policy. He sees the big stuff. He's like, wait, you've got Russia and China. They don't trust each other. We can't let them get together. They'll kick our ass. And we'll be, we're not, we're not going to fight a war against them, one hopes, but we'll definitely be taking orders from them. Definitely. Mm-hmm. No. And he said that. Five years ago, when everyone's like, shut up, racist. (laughs) Okay, he's a racist. But is he wrong?